What's up, y'all? It's Miles the Millennial, the millennial who's actually not a millennial, but is technically still a millennial. And this is Millennials with the Mindset, the podcast where we tell you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. And today we're going to have a really good discussion, um, a very serious discussion. And it's just me today. It's solo dolo. Jalen isn't on this one episode. He'll be on the next one that we record. But this is something I really wanted to come to you guys on my own and really have a deep conversation with everyone that listens, especially those that are part of the black community. If you aren't a part of the black community, most of this you will not be able to relate to or understand. You may be able to comprehend it when I say it, but, you know, feel free to, you know, log off if you don't, you know, feel connected to it. Um, And if you do continue to listen and you aren't a part of the black community, just understand that none of this is an attack on you. None of this is a, a, a justification or moral, you know, standard to come for you and your people or anything like that this is really just me saying what black people need to realize and how we need to grow and today's topic is going to be very controversial so hey if you have your opinions feel free to dm me feel free to you know contact me if you have my contact info you can find me on social media at milesthemillennial.com or at milesthemillennial on instagram or anything else so it's really straightforward but the topic today is going to be why voting will not save us. And when I say us, I'm speaking on black people. You know, we seem to have this very big emphasis, and I've always had this big emphasis on the fact that we need to vote, on the fact that voting is 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 the key. Whenever we deal with all our issues and we're mad and we're upset and we feel hopeless and in pain and all these different things, we always champion voting as the way that we need to use that tool to move forward. And it's something that I think we need to actually analyze and look at is voting one, the answer that we think it is Two, if it is that answer, why or what has it done for us? We need to analyze the actual actions and results from that. I believe any people, you know, any organization, any group must do analysis on their actions to see if the choices they made actually benefited them or if it hurt them. And if you're not doing that as as a group, as a community, as an organization, anything, you're, you're doomed to fail and, and think that certain things work when they don't and think that some things don't work when they actually do. And I pull a lot of this inspiration from some new knowledge I've acquired over the past few months. You know, I, like most people, have been very, you know, moved by all the things we've seen over quarantine. And it's made me think a lot. And I've, you know, done a lot of research on black on the black community, just in general, our condition, why we are in the place we are, because I had to sit there and think, are the things happening to us, you know, purely based on white and black, or is there a deeper truth? I'm somebody that truly believes that the powers that be are always playing a mind game. And whatever is the expected outcome or the expected answer or whatever, you know, expected action, they've already thought of how we're going to act. So when we protest or when we vote or when we do any of these things, when we act out against each other, anything, the powers that be have designed this world to be that way. So they know that we are going to go to what we've been innately taught as the, the action for every reaction and, and the cause and effect. So when I look at 
voting and I look at the black community, I see that we have really pushed voting as the answer to our problems for the past 50, 60 years since we got civil rights. And it made me really think, okay, is there a bigger issue underlying in our community? Why, if voting is our answer, why are we still dealing with the same things we were dealing with 50, 60 years ago today? Um, and as I, I, I started to research, I came across, you know, some, some really powerful black thought leaders, people with not just, you know, the, the and no, no offense to Umar Johnson, but people who, who have served in different places that give them an insight into the world from a different perspective than what we see. Two of those people, uh, actually three of those people, uh, Dr. Claude Anderson, who was chairman and I think president of um, like the Land and Resource Committee for one of the presidential administrations back in, back in like the 80s. He's the only black man to ever hold the position. And, you know, he literally had the power to sign off and give land to people. His signature could do that. He didn't need anybody else's signature, which basically made him one of the most powerful men in this country. Um, one founding principle that I need you guys to keep up with me throughout this episode is that power in this country is based on economics. And economics is based on your control of resources and ownership. That means, do you have entities and businesses? Do you have control over the resources, the land, the, the labor, you know, the, the, all those natural materials? Who controls them are the ones who have the power. Who owns those businesses are the ones who have the power. And voting in and of itself is a, 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 an amalgamation for people who have power so that they can utilize their influence to create a change that benefits them. That's the principle of voting. It's a quid pro, pro quo process, something for something. It's supposed to be I, you know, give you this vote and you do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, I don't vote for you again or I go elect somebody else to take your spot. It's not, oh, I give you my vote just because I like you or because I know you or because you look like me or because you're a part of one political party. Um, that's something that other people can do because they have the luxury of, and the freedom of not having the same issues as black people. And we have to understand that we can't play the game, you know, in the way they told us to play. We have to play the game based on our own skill set, based on our own condition. You can't play like the, you know, the bulls of the 90s when you, you got you don't have the team for it. You don't have the positions. You don't have the same training and materials to accomplish what they accomplish. So you have to start at the beginning and see what are the fundamentals that you need to build before you can go execute the way that they execute? So I, I found that the issue, since voting is such a huge part of you know, our society and is based on power, and power, like I said, is based on economics, which is ownership and control of resources, those two things. Black people lack in that area more than anything else. As I looked across the board at so many different categories of our life, there, we, we aren't different than people. We actually excel more than a lot of other people in a lot of other categories. Um, education is one. Black women are the most educated group in America. So it's not education that's going to get us our answer. You know, it's not going through the traditional school system and getting your doctorate degrees and, and your, your undergrad, bachelor degrees and anything. That's not going to save us because if that's the case, a lot of the things that are happening now would not be happening. Um, or our conditions would truly be improving. But the numbers show that they aren't. And that's a big misconception for us is that we believe our condition has gotten better since the 50s or has gotten better since slavery. And the numbers honestly show it completely different. And I'm a very big person on numbers, on the data, on the actual results, the tangible things. Because you can use lip service all you want to say that things are better. But I, I 
don't care about that. I don't care about what you say. I care about what you can show me. I care about what you can perform on and execute on and we can say is a fact. Certain things are feelings. And a lot of things that black people do, due to things that happened with us in slavery, we base on our emotions. We act on our emotions. We think on our emotions. I'm gonna read to you guys this article and it's about the black dollar and you know our black community just in general. I'm gonna read to you some, some key points and I'm just gonna dissect them as I go through this episode. So this episode, this uh, document is from the Victorian Advocate, which was um, a community newspaper and um, for this town, I believe Victoria. And it's pretty recent. So this, this keep in mind, this report comes from 2015-ish. Um, a lot of the numbers are based on between 2011 and 2015. So we're five years later. And I'm going to say something about that even more once this is over with. But they're talking about the black buying power. And one of the ladies in here says that her parents emphasized to her and her siblings the importance of black community by purchasing products and services from people who look like them. And she says that her as a business owner, she's noticed that in the past you know, decade or two, that's really died off. That mindset has really left. And she says that, you know, that's what's wrong with black culture. They don't try to help each other. And they go on in this article to talk about how much money we bring in as black people. Now, now take a listen to this. It says that black buying power has increased from $957.3 billion in 2010 to an expected $1.1 trillion in 2015. So equivalent to about 300, 400 billion more dollars in our buying power in a matter of five years. Tremendous increases. And it says, although uh, this data reflects positive growth in terms of disposable income for African-Americans, the growing failure of blacks to do significant business with other blacks cast a dark shadow over the, over the news. Goes on to speak on how many times the dollar is circulated within the black community within communities in general. Now, this is something I've, I've, I've heard, so I'm going to tell you this one real quick. From the article, it says, money circulates zero to one time within the black community, compared to the more than six times it circulates in the Latino community, nine times in the Asian community, and an unlimited amount of times in the white community. This is from Georgia's Center for Economic Growth. Okay, Now, this is in 2015. Now, let me break down these numbers for you in 2020. Okay. White people circulate the dollar in their community an average of 14 times before it leaves it. Uh, Jewish people circulate their daughter, dollar an average of 18 times. Asians around 13 times. Hispanics around four times. Blacks, zero. Zero times. That means we get the dollar from our paycheck or from our business, whatever it is, however you get paid. And the second it hits your account, it leaves your account to go to somebody else's community. You buy from their stores. You buy from their, their, their grocery centers. And you go to their shops. You shop with them. You put your money in their community. Now, I think there's a culmination of two things going on here. You know, and one's our fault. One isn't. But they both can be addressed and we can answer both of them. The first thing that's happening here is, one, we don't shop with each other we just don't think to buy black first now i've seen a movement to promote that recently but i'm talking about just in general you know it's so much easier for us to idolize companies from other people in this community 
it, it has become the quote unquote American standard. And because we believe we are a part of that American standard, we hold ourselves to that same likelihood and to that same standard. Um, when in reality, it's, it's, a, it's all a, a game being played. And the second thing is we don't own the resources to actually build that infrastructure to where people can shop with us. You know, I speak about this a lot, how, you know, we have black businesses, not that black businesses are on, are on, on the up and up. There's more black businesses now than ever, you know, than there, there was, you know, 10 years ago. But the type of businesses that we have are not needs. Everybody has their own clothing, including me. You know, I'm a part of this. Everybody has a clothing line, you know. Everybody sells, you know, body butters and soaps and stuff or, you know, all these different things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's powerful because it is building your own economic, you know, freedom. But the problem with it is the things that our community needs, the things that we really spend our money on are need-based businesses. So that's your grocery stores, your tax companies, your car washes, your uh, what you call restaurants, your um, everything, you know, your laundromats. All these different places that are going to have continuous income and they are necessities for their community. The corner stores, the gas stations. And guess who owns all of those? You go to the grocery store and it's owned by white people. You go to the nail salon or the, the laundromat and it's probably run by Asians. You go to the restaurant and it's you know probably owned by Mexicans or Hispanics, excuse me, Latinos. You know, you get your grass cut in and, and lawn services or home improvement services done, it's probably done by Latinos. If if you go to the corner store, it's probably owned by Arabs. You know, everybody has needs businesses in our community, but we don't own none of our own. The only thing we own is a chicken shack most of the time. And people ain't eating there. You know, I'm not going to eat at that same chicken shack every day. I maybe go once a week max. But but regardless, I'm going to go to that corner store and that gas station and that grocery store every single time on the dot when it's time for me to get something done because it's a need. And because we don't own any of those needs, because we don't possess the resources for any of those needs, we have limited ourselves and our true potential to grow our community. Because your money's going straight to somebody else's community. So why do they need to, why do they feel the need to treat you better when they already treat you bad, where you already complain about them treating you bad, but you come and service them? Am I saying that, oh, stop, you know, going to everybody else's stuff and forget everybody, hate them? No. What I'm saying is think black first. Everybody else focuses on community. We don't. We as a people do not even trust our own. We look at each other and, and we just are thrown away by it. There's a there's a um a story. You know, matter of fact, I'm going to go back to the article and we're going to get there in just a second. So it talks about how between 2002 and 2007 the number of black-owned non-farm businesses increased 60%. Okay? It said it's more than 3 times the national business ownership rate. We increased 3 times more than everybody else in terms of the amount of businesses we grew. And it talks about how these black-owned firms employed 900,000 black people and owned a percentage of this employ employment, like had a big impact on black community development in terms of the economics in that community. But we spent it all away from our community. Therefore, the real power that we had is gone. We gave it to somebody else. And they talk about how a community's health is directly correlated to how many times money circulates or recycles within that community. So how many times you can keep the money in your community 
is going to show your community's wealth and your community's health. You go to rich neighborhoods, they have every single thing they need right there. Every single thing. They support each other. You go to other people's neighborhoods, everybody has a Chinatown. You know, everybody has a, a, a little Italy or, or a place where all the Latinos stay or a place where all the, the, the Arabs stay. Like, everybody has that. Everybody has that sense of community. And we, on the other hand, do not. You know, they talk about uh, <laughs> Dr. Claude Anderson spoke on the fact that, you know, we don't have neighborhoods. Neighborhood is rooted in the word neighbor. A neighbor is someone who takes care of the, the person. He looks out for the person around him. He, he cares for the person around him. He supports the person around him. He said what happened was black people have been so psychologically, you know, manipulated and raped that they took the neighbor out of the hood, and that's why all we got now is hoods. You think of the only places you know where black people congregate together. We call it the hood every time. Why is that? Because there is no neighbor in that place. We're killing each other. That's where crime is rampant. We're selling drugs to, to, to destroy each other. You know, we are economically just uneducated and, and, and you know, we, we're just at our lowest state. There's no real sense of community in these places because we're, we're, we're busy, like, tearing ourselves apart. Therefore, it is no neighborhood. The, nobody ever thought about the reason why we even called the hood the hood. It's because the neighbor left a long time ago. The neighbor was, you know, the, the black people who came from Portum. And we moved into, you know, the middle class in those 60s and 70s, 80s. And what we did was instead of staying in that neighborhood when it was still the neighborhood, we said, you know what? I have grown. I'm going over there where those folks stay. I make as much as them now. And we go live in somebody else's community and go pay their property taxes and go build their community centers and, and vote on their policies. And we're one or two homes in, in a community of 100. We 2% of, of the people there. What, what real influence do you have? Where you could have been a part of a place where you were 90% of that population and you had the ability to grow somebody else to do it for them. And we left. And I got to ask you, why do you guys think that is? I have my theory. You know, they talk about in this article that they're, the issue, the reason why we don't support each other is because it's this concept of their ice is colder than mine. Basically saying, like, they refer to blacks and whites and they say, you know, black people, because we were, you know, taken away from so many things, because we were prevented from having so many things for so long, we genuinely thought that what they had was better just because we didn't have it, just because we were prevented from having it. What we didn't realize is ice is ice. It's water that's frozen. It ain't no better. It ain't no worse. But it's a psychological thing. We are psychologically enchained. We're still in chains. So there's a story Dr. Claude Anderson ends up speaking about. He's from Carolina, North Carolina, I believe. There was a village in North Carolina. Not a village. It's going call it a village. A community in North Carolina. And this is, you know, pre-civil rights movement. And they talk about the fact that in this time period, they owned everything in their community. Right? Because it's segregation. So they have... Three black-owned uh, bus companies that took everybody where they needed to go. Had their own route systems, took them all the way around the city. Everywhere they needed to go was a working machine. Black restaurants, black companies, black tax companies, black businesses. Everything was black-owned, and you supported each other because you didn't have a choice. That was the only option. That was the only way y'all could survive was if y'all supported each other. And he talks about, you know, 
when when integration ended up coming, what ended up happening was everybody thought that was going to solve their problems, and it ended up tearing down their communities because then everybody left to go to the white communities or to the Asian communities or wherever else. And everybody went to white schools and Asian schools and all these private schools and, and all these other places instead of staying with their own and growing their own. And the, the even bigger picture of what happened was all the business left that community. So you had these black owned bus lines. And guess what? He said within five to 10 years after integration, every last one of them was out of business. They did not exist no more because nobody would ride them. Nobody would ride them. Nobody would get on those buses. Not because the, the white buses were any better. He said the white buses were no different. The exact same models and everything. But because they were white owned and we were told we couldn't do it. We said, oh, now I have the freedom to. I'm going to do it just because I can just to defy you. It, it's kind of similar to when you prevent a child from doing something as they grow up and you keep telling them they can't. They can't. They can't. They can't. The second they get away to either sneak around or a little bit of freedom to do it, what do they do? They go run and do the exact thing you told them not to do. And you probably told them not to do it for a good reason. But guess what? They're not worried about the consequence at that moment. They're not even seeing the consequence at that moment. They're seeing their freedom. And they don't realize they're really just harming themselves and putting themselves in more chains. Because you, you create a consequence that's so harmful that you're not going to see the impact right then and there. It's going to be down the road and you're like, dang, I really should have just listened or I should have stayed where I was at. In this case, not listen, but I should have stayed where I was at in my community. We were championing integration as our answer. That's one thing I've noticed as I look throughout history. Whenever we get to a certain point as a people and we're trying to progress, quote unquote, we are told the answer by other people outside of our community. Integration, 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 integration. Integration is your answer. Integration is the way. Integration will get you freedom. Integration will get you equality. Integration will solve your problems. And what black people are now starting to realize is integration really harmed us more. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, that we shouldn't like communicating and being around other people. Like, it's not that. Other people are great. You know, they have their own issues in their own communities. But black people have specific problems that need specific answers because of the specific torment and pain that was brought to us that nobody else had to experience. So when we take answers from others, instead of focusing on the real fundamentals that are going to get us where we want to go, that's where we always lose. So we preached integration and we got it. And now we're sitting here where we are in 2020 and things ain't looking too good. You know, we're, we're more educated than we've ever been. We are more empowered than we've ever been in terms of our unity, our thought process to say black first. But guess what? We aren't. We're not executing. And our condition has went down. Black ownership was at its highest before integration. Black wealth was at the highest it's ever been. The per capita income on a proportional basis based on inflation, of course, you got to account for that, how money has increased over time. But the amount of wealth that the average black person had pre-integration is loads higher than it is now. What does that tell you? It tells you that having community, having to depend on each other and recycle your resources between each other is more than enough to create a better system, a better life for us. To get us the life we want. Yes, they had their struggles back then, but you know what they didn't have? People could not tell them what they could do in their own community. They owned themselves. 
They had their own freedom. They were their own masters. Nobody else owned them. But it's hard to tell the people that have been taken away from something for so long and have been, you know, held back from something that this, you know, you can't have it in. And that's what I say. So and, and for them to realize that, you know, actually, I am better where I'm at. It's hard. So I don't blame them. But, you know, you have to recognize the patterns of this society is that the people in power always give us the answer. But if they're the ones that created the game in the first place and they want to win, do you really think the answer that they're giving us is the one that's really going to help us win? Because I don't know about you, but if I enable a game and I want myself to win it, if I establish something and I want to make sure I remain on top, I'm never going to give you the real code to winning it. I'll give you just enough. If I know you're getting a little too smart, I'm going to give you enough to think that you're on your right path. But in reality, I'm controlling the strings. I'm, I'm puppeteering it all. And they did that with integration. And what I see now is they're doing it with voting. Voting is being championed as the answer. And back then, if you were a black person that did not want integration, they told you you was crazy. Your own people will call you crazy. Your own people will call you militant or, 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 or call you stupid. Doesn't make any sense. This is that and that, yada, yada, yada. And now everybody is looking back on it like, huh, okay, I see the point. That's a really big thing that we have to recognize is that they've created mistrust within our own people to where we will shoot down those who do different. Those who don't fall in line, we will shoot them down. We will turn on our own brothers and our own sisters because they do something that we don't necessarily understand or agree with. Rather than having those discussions with ourselves, we will go to somebody else's network to get on their screen and talk about why, they're, why this other black person is wrong. It's crazy to me. It's, 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 it's horrible to me because we're separating ourselves when we could unite, where we could learn from each other, where we could have a real conversation and really grow. You know, we, we talk about how voting is being used now. It's just thrown in our face. Go vote. Go vote. Go vote. Vote. Vote is the answer. Vote is the answer. If you not voting, you don't have a voice. You don't have a reason to complain. That is the greatest lie ever. How can you tell me that because I don't agree with the answer you're telling me it is, I have no reason to speak on the way I think it should go? What gives you the, the, the reasoning to think that your answer is right? And people will sit there and say voting has gotten us where we're at. And where is that? Where is that? Because the last time I checked, whether we voted Democrat or Republican, black men are still getting murdered in the streets. Black women are still being raped and pillaged. We still don't have trust and love amongst each other as brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, fathers and, and mothers. We don't have it. We don't have community. We don't trust each other. And voting is not going to solve any of those things. And those are the biggest things destroying our community. Not whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden is in office. Eight years ago when Barack was in office, our lives ain't changed none since then to now. None. Tell me what's different. Tell me the things that have changed in your life. I'm not talking about from a national scale. That is for this nation to figure out. I am talking about for black people. How has your life changed in the last eight years? And most of those were too young to really even understand it. But I've had this conversation with a lot of people older than me. And when they really had to sit back and I, and I pressed tight on them about this concept, they actually had to sit there and say, OK, maybe you're right about this. Maybe you're right about the fact that my life isn't no different whether Trump is in office or not. And, and they'll just resort to the fact, well, shoot, we got to do something. And voting is what they see as the answer. And I'm going to tell you that voting 
and this is something from Dr. Claude Anderson, who wrote Poweronomics and uh, Black Labor, White Wealth. It's two very key books you guys should read. Um, he talks about the fact that voting is a tool. It's not the answer. It's never been the answer. White people don't use voting as an answer. They use it as a tool. See, to them, it's so naturally ingrained in them because that is their community. They already have community. They already have ownership and control and resources. So they can vote. And it can be seen as a quote-unquote answer for them. That's just what they think. But the powers that be know that voting is just a tool. It's just, a, it's just a, something we do every two years, every four years. You know what I'm saying? We utilize it to, to, to help benefit us a little bit more. But the number one thing we need is this money. The number one thing we need is to always make sure we are circulating it within ourselves. We're not giving it to anybody else. We got to play this game for us to win. And black people are not playing the game for us to win. We're playing the game other people laid out for us. We are playing the game that our slave masters, who are the ones who have, who our last names are named after right now. For our owners that they told us this was the way. You want to talk about slave codes and, and what slavery did to us and why we really need to pay attention? There was a, a thing that came about during the slave codes in the early 1700s. I'm reading it. I'm going to murder the word, but I'm going to read it for you. It's called meritorious manumission. Meritorious manumission. Now, I'm going to read to you the definition of meritorious manumission real quick. It says, during the enslavement period of Africans in America, the Meritorious Manumission Act of 1710 was enacted in Virginia. It was the legal act of freeing a slave for good deeds, quote unquote, good deeds, as defined by the national public policy and could be granted to a slave who did one of these three things. Y'all listen, could be granted to a slave who either saved the life of a white master or his property, invented something from which a slave master could make a profit, or snitched on a fellow slave who was plotting a slave rebellion or to run away. So really think about what they just did. They said, we will give you freedom from your condition. We will give you freedom from your condition if you save my, my life or my property. That should say a lot right there. You see how they included property in there alongside life? That's because that's wealth. That's what really means progress for your people and your family and your generational wealth that we want to talk about now yeah there's more to it than just having money you got to know what to do with it you got to know its own you got to know how to grow it so that's one that's one way you could get it the second way was if you invented something to make me some money <laughs> if you invented something that could help me and my people prosper i'll give you your freedom and the third thing and the biggest one we need to see the biggest one was if you snitched on your people and they're trying to, you know, run away or have a rebellion to go against this system. If you snitch on them, we got you. You'll be free. Do you guys know that out of the 150 to 200 slave revolts that took place back then, almost every single one of them failed because they had a black person who went and told their masters what was going on, who told them a secret about where they were at or their plans. And that's why they failed. See, slave revolts didn't fail because they were, quote unquote, unprepared. That could have played a part. But you want to know the biggest thing is if you go and tell the enemy, you know, and sell out on your own people to the enemy, you're going to lose. They gave away everything. And we do this to this day. We sell out on each other. We will go and, and go against our own for the profit of others. 
for the progress of others and we look at it as us being woke we look at it as us being the the conscious black people i mean the conscious black society has betrayed the the, the impoverished the 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 struggling and uneducated black society like no other because what we do is we talk at them not to them not with them we don't try to grow them we tell them that they're coons. We call them stupid. We call them bigots. We call them out of their name and hold men and women to a lower level than what they should be simply because they do not understand the things that you were blessed to learn. We don't go and support our own businesses and give them the same thing. We turn and sell out on our own people when they're trying to grow. If you go to a black restaurant and they mess up your order, you'll talk all the smack about them and say you won't be coming back and say this is why you don't support black business because they got bad customer service or they don't do things right. But if Chick-fil-A went tomorrow and you went to Chick-fil-A and they destroyed your order, Chick-fil-A could put something in your food that you said not to put in because you're allergic and you would go back the next week and say that's not representative of all of them. And you'll go buy it again, even though they just almost killed you. Meritorious man, you mission. Sell out on your people. I'll give you freedom. Do as I say. Help out my plan. And I'll make sure everything goes okay for you. But your people, uh, that's not going to happen. So we got to really look when we talk about voting. Okay, and we co-sign ourselves to political parties and we tell each other, vote straight Democrat, vote straight Republican. Do we not understand that these parties are not for us and they never were designed for us? These are situations that are granted to solve the people with power to solve their problems. And one thing black people need to realize is we don't have that power yet. So am I telling you not to vote? No. What I am telling you to do is make sure you are making all the areas in your community. That means the love you have between you and your partner, the love you have between you and your kids, your friends, your, your, your the education you bring back to your family. And we treat them with love and we treat them with dignity and we treat them with that type of respect. That's one. Part two is to have true unity when it comes to economic development and economic empowerment. See, the beauty of Black Wall Street, we talk about Black Wall Street being burned down and how they did this. The beauty of Black Wall Street is it's being built today before our eyes. But you see, the difference is it's not through any town. It's not through some location. It's through the Internet. You can connect and support somebody in every single area that you need. But you got to look beyond. You have to look beyond. Martin Luther King said towards the end of his life, literally, he said this to Harry Belafonte. Okay, let me read this. And he, they said this happened... It looks like less than a few weeks. Yeah. Yep. Less than a few weeks before he was murdered. Said he was talking to Martin Luther King. And he told Harry Belafonte. He said, I've come upon something that disturbs me deeply. I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. When he speaks on this, a lot of people never even heard this before, and they don't know a big reason why Martin Luther King is not here, why he was killed then. Martin Luther King was never, you know, truly threatened. You know, of course, you had the hatred and everything, but his life was never taken away until he pivoted his stance. Martin Luther King went away from civil rights, and he went to silver rights towards the end of his life. He started to realize that it doesn't matter. People don't have a moral standard in this country. The powers that be, it's not about morals. It's not about black and white. It's about one thing, green. Black people have always been the labor force. 
We have always been the economic generator for others. So if we keep us in the place where we making them green, we'll do whatever we got to do. If that means we integrate, what's more important to me than having a black person, you know, being able to sit next to me while I eat is if that black person is working for me to make sure me and my family eat for the next 10 generations. We'll choose money over the color of your skin, green over black over white. And that's something black people need to really understand and really move forward with. Martin Luther King started to say we needed silver rights, not civil rights, land reparations, economic empowerment and community development. That's the way you change the world. That's the way we change our condition. So before you think on calling your own people a coon because of the actions they take that you don't agree with, recognize that your answer and their answer, probably both wrong. And the key to it all is empowering each other. Instead of looking at your brother as an enemy or a sellout, reason with him, grow with him. Love your women, love your children, love your brothers. As black men and black women, we need each other. And when we come together, we can truly change the world and move mountains for ourselves. Never accept the answer that you were told. Seek the answer for yourself, change your mind, change your life. Thanks, y'all.